It's machine learning from Assist. It's a podcast where we think and dream about the future of AI, the talking internet, and how we're reshaping our culture. This chapter is an excerpt from our longer conversation with Catherine Hume. Catherine Hume came to us via Robin Sloan, a great friend of the pod. In this chapter, Shane and Catherine dig into feedback loops and how they help brands finally build real genuine relationships with a community of customers. Catherine works at Integrate AI now and has done product, marketing, investment, and mentored startups. We loved our time with her, and we think you will too. Enjoy. Take capitalism and business and how it impacts communicating with your customer. Like we're communicating as two people who you know have found meaning. <laughs> how do you find meaning with your customers? This is a great question. I actually do believe that sort of the big shift that's rendered possible with AI is that customers now give feedback and can give feedback and can be listened to even by their actions and transactions in a way that really wasn't as focused on in technology systems that just sort of push stuff out. Uh, what's neat about like new products, like I love Spotify, um, is that, you know, they have this very simple interface where we can say plus, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down and shape the set of choices that will be presented, like or the, the, the experience that we have in the future. So that's that, fascinating. That's a great example of AI being used very well for good. Oh, and for like sure. My weekly playlist on Spotify is amazing. Somebody asked me recently in terms of how AI is going to impact sort of the human experience. They were like, is it going to take away self-determination? I was like, oh, actually, they also said A, self-determination and B, serendipity. So like, you know, the experience, sort of a nostalgic experience where you walk into a bookshop and you think you're going in to buy Oscar Wilde's Portrait of Dorian Gray and you sort of browse around and find something that you never would have discovered otherwise. And that's great. Like, I'm all for that. But I think Spotify does that because of the Discover Weekly where, you know, we don't have a lot of time to go on and sort of search for new music unless you're really a diehard and you're like reading Pitchfork every, every Monday or every Tuesday. So if I'm a, if I'm a brand in the world... How, what, how should I think about language or how should I change my language or what, what, what do I need to do? I mean, I think it's about that feedback loop. So you need to open up the ability to uh, listen to customers as individuals. And here it's like, it's funny I say that, but my mind immediately goes like, this doesn't mean that it's become creepy and collect every single solitary piece of data about somebody in every aspect of their life so that you, you know, know them better than themselves and, and can like do creepy, do creepy stuff with data, but rather, um, understand that like you might be underserving certain populations. If you go in with your expectation that like everybody works this way or sort of these sort of ossified approximative stereotypes on what people might be interested in. If you can get some vehicle, it has to be easy because no one wants to fill out a survey. Nobody wants to like do extra work. They just want to be delighted. And they and also like what I love about design thinking and, and applying this with AI is that when you think about offering a product, don't view it as this is the product, but rather what is this, what does it mean to experience this product? So Warby Parker is actually really great at this, where they don't sell glasses, they sell the end-to-end experience of what it means to like fix your vision. And include in the customer experience everywhere from like being able to try on a couple of pairs to figure out what works best to, I think they have some, um, I actually don't, I'm not a Warby Parker customer myself because my eyes are very close together and standard eyeglasses like look horrible on me. Interesting. So I have to go to kids' uh, glasses yeah. shops. 
<laughs> which like is like sucks, but it is what it is. But um, you know, they like they just contextualize in the full experience. So I think that there's really this magical opportunity with AI. We tend to think of it as like it's gonna, you know, there's fear of job automation and like everything becoming like sort of the realm of the robots. But if we reconceptualize the tech as what I consider to be the connective tissue between humans who want to love one another as individuals or like what it means for a company to really love a customer and loving them means empathizing with their experience and different people's experiences. I think it's like a wonderful way to view these tools. And brands are driven by attention. For sure. Capitalism is. So when they can deploy AI and if attention is the game and it's focused on that, is it going to get bad? I mean, for me, this goes to long-term versus short-term. So if the brand is optimized to get short-term you know, revenue wins and attention and hacking attention is the hook there, then, then they're going to optimize for that. Uh, if, on the other hand, there starts to be sort of a... Like, consumers don't want that anymore, and the brands really need to focus on their long-term like loyalty Relationship. and relationships with people then for me, it, somehow it has to make sense. And it's, mm-hmm. of course, I don't want to be too overly idealistic, right? There needs to be the right balance between P&L holders and businesses that have near quarterly revenue targets and fiduciary duty back to shareholders. And like, this is how the system is all structured. But you're, we're starting to see things fray a little bit at the seams. What are and some examples? So gosh, even in the company that I'm working with right now, we there's a notion in... Uh, sort of thinking about working with data and consumer enterprises of lifetime value. So like you want, and you want to maximize the lifetime value from a customer. So it might be that somebody comes in and they spend like $700 on day one. And you're like, Ooh, interesting. Like let's focus on this person. But then you notice that they spend once and then they're just gone. So like their lifetime value is like, is, is exhausted from that first transaction and others where it starts off kind of slow, but it builds over time. And you got that, like, it's almost like a one night stand versus a long-term enduring relationship, you know? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, Amazon Prime yeah. actually is, it's a brilliant mechanism to ensure customer loyalty. And what I've heard, and, you know, this is a little bit of just, uh, it might be apocryphal, but um, all of the features like Amazon Video, you know, that you get as a Prime subscriber, those are tricks to get people on Prime. Like, it's not like a service in itself. It's like a, it's an, it's an additional benefit because what they really care about is having that subscription because that leads to, like, the correlation between that being a leading indicator of, of like stickiness with the customer is so tight that they're the, just like the best business is subscription for sure. And once you've already invested that sunk cost, like, and you get all of the benefits of like, it's going to arrive in two days, you know, the, the, the amenities that go along with being a prime subscriber, like, of course, you know, now, does that mean that it's really in the customer's best interest? Good question. Um, it certainly is the case that like, as you think about like why Amazon is the business that it is, that, they invest in long term. Like they're thinking about when they take an action today, it's not oriented towards short term profitability and horizons. And this is a lot of the sort of companies that, like so large Silicon Valley companies, where if you look at their balance sheet, it's so much startling that the valuations are so high, but they're sort of playing a different game than most other companies are governed by. If I'm a brand, and even where we in our past got taught is to have the answer and like raise our hand and get an A and like, not really be cool with saying, I don't know. Mm-hmm. In this space, how is a brand who's probably not cool with a bunch of heirs cool with heirs? Um, they struggle with it. You know, it's, That's why uh, people struggle with how to even understand to implement AI or bots or whatever. 
for my take, it's like the biggest cultural challenge mm-hmm. is getting comfortable with um, making mistakes, you know, uh, learning, having the output of a system be a probabilistic guess that may or may not be right and being okay with that. Um, Especially because software actually was built on the internet in a way where it worked or it didn't. Yeah, for sure. People are used to, um, also even in like agile product development, being able to know how long it takes to build X or Y widget. Uh, when you move into sort of AI and you're like, we're going to do some experiments. We start with this hypothesis. We get some data. And it's like, nope, it didn't work. There's basically re, it's almost being more like an, an investor, you know, where you sort of place your, you spread your bets across multiple companies, knowing that nine out of 10 are going to fail, but like there could be the opportunity for one to be really great. Um, it's focusing on long-term opportunity, knowing that errors and failure is a big part of the new world. It's part of it, and it's the only way to learn. Uh, also, even as a you know, as humans, um, you learn a lot more from the mistakes you make. And it's helpful that when the end of the story is positive, right? If you're just yeah. sort of like always failing, it's not, not really the best recipe for well-being, mental mental health, and well-being. But um, go ahead. Yeah, but it, it's a you know, if there's no, if you don't make mistakes, you learn the most when. You try something and it's not as great. You can sort of refine over time. What are the two or three words that you think, as if I was a company, long term I should focus on to get me started today to walk into this space? So I think uh, a lot of it is going to depend upon data. So imagining what could be possible and then ensuring that you're designing interfaces to collect really great and interesting data to help solve that problem. Um, What do you see as the best interface? So I just did a podcast interview on my podcast with uh, my friend Eric Coulson, who um, is the chief algorithms officer, which is such an interesting title for Stitch Fix. And uh, so Stitch Fix is this, are you familiar with it? It's like this, yeah, it's an out, it's an outsourced personal shopper company where, you know, it's e-commerce play and you can come in as a, as a user and you just sort of input information into 60 questions and then that's it they send you clothing and you can get five items per month five items per week however many you'd like and what's really fascinating about what they've done is they've actually like they get a lot more data about people so they've designed this interface where it's not just your transactions like what you bought but they've got like people measurements size taste right so it's a much richer collection that does require that upfront effort from a person to come in and sort of fill out the initial information. But that effort is then offset by the fact that going forward, they don't have to shop anymore. You spend 15 minutes to get rid of the shopping entirely. Mm. Um, and in the process, they're getting a totally different rich set of information about people and their preferences and like what they're interested in that a typical e-commerce play doesn't have. Fascinating. So because of the relationship channel, that's one-to-one. It's not a bad idea to make me work up front if long as you deliver on the promise. It's an interesting trade-off because you know anytime there's friction and there's a little bit of work up front, it's like, you know, it's going to be you're going to you're going to lose some customers because they're just going to they're going to get to that interface and be like, screw this, I'm not doing it. But, but then your value is in the relationship because that's the only thing that keeps people coming back. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Interesting. It's even uh, thinking about like a hotel, right? I hate when I have to rebook again and resign it. Like everything you have to do again, it's almost you got to get me to never have to do anything. Oh, for sure. Once you've like, I mean, they know you well enough to know a little bit about your preferences and you've, you sort of set this thing and each time you stay, it should become easier to stay the next time. That's a good motto. You know? Every time the customer interacts with you, it should be easier and more delightful. That's right. Yeah. I think that's a good way to think about it. And then that flip side of getting there is knowing that there's going to be some error, right? It's not going to be perfect every time, but in the aggregate overall, Every time the customer interacts with you, it's easier and more delightful. How do you interact with the customer if it is an error? 
do I just tell them, hey, is it more like what we're trying to do as humans, like more direct, honest feedback? We're like, we're really sorry, we just don't know that answer yet. But we can, we'll let you know when we do. I think that's the way. And then you say, well, how do we get there as a culture, right? Where, what do we have to do in terms of educating everybody about how this technology works so that we can have more honest conversations via like AI interfaces to be like, we made a mistake. We're really sorry. You know, here's why. What can we do differently next time? We need to reprogram ourselves to be cool with making mistakes. And that, and that goes not only at the company level, but even at a, like, think about when, you know, I mean, I'm in sales meetings all the time and I've always found that it's a great way to gain the prospect or the customer's trust by saying, I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to go home and do my homework. And sort of, it almost legitimizes then everything else you've said. Cause then it's like everything you've heard here to date, like it's right. I wasn't, I'm not faking going back to the beginning of our conversation. Like, you know, how do you know if this is sarcastic or real? It's like one way is to express vulnerability and be upfront with areas where, you know, you, you can't, you don't have the right answer. It's the key to trust. Yeah. And I think trust is a huge, I mean, it's a huge thing right now between uh, consumers and brands. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's fun. All right. Thanks for listening. Get in touch on Twitter at Assist. DMs are open. We're super interested to hear who you think should appear on the podcast. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and share this with someone who cares about how we make sense of these changing times. Machine Yearning is made by Paul Chufo and Michael Elsesser for Limina House. Have a great day.